If you brought your Bibles, let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are parked here for a little bit, and we are talking about being on guard. If there is ever a time the church, the body of Christ, should be on guard and to watch things and to watch their lives, it's now. And so we're talking about that, being on guard. Last week, we, we started looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you, were, if you missed it, uh, it's online. You can listen to it on our church Facebook page. And uh, that is not Facebook, uh, our church website, excuse me. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at is, uh, Israel's warning to the church, to the Corinthians, to us today, and as well. And so verses 1 through 13. If you brought your Bible, you're reading along. Verse 1, Paul, the apostle, wrote these words under divine inspiration. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers... He calls them brothers, all right? So keep that in mind. That our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. We'll talk about that today. Nevertheless, verse 5, key. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, for you and for me, warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, be on guard. Be on guard. Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. How many know God is faithful? God is faithful. God, He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. I am thankful for the provision of God and for the grace of God. And as we sang this morning, you know, let your mercies fall from heaven. Every day we need the mercy of God. Well, 1 Corinthians 10 enforces the point that Paul makes really at the end of chapter 9, keeping in mind there were no chapters and verses when he wrote this letter. That's for our benefit. But, but basically Paul, at the end of what we know as chapter 9, talked about how we're all in a race, and we're to run that race to win. We're to run to finish, and we need to finish well. And, and Paul gives Israel as a prime example that not all who start the race finish well. All right, and so Israel, as we recall, had been greatly blessed by God in every way imaginable. And if any people ever felt safe and secure in their journey, in their race, that was Israel. And yet the people, the Bible says, perished in the wilderness outside of the promised land, uh, equating with heaven, because the Bible says, and God was not pleased with most of them. 
And Paul's basically saying, Hartman paraphrase, I'm warning you. All right, I'm, I'm writing this letter of warning to make sure that you don't allow to, in your life what happened to Israel. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks as well. But Paul really used Israel's uh, wilderness experience as an object lesson to emphasize the fact that how we begin is not as important as how we finish. You know, so we need to, church, not only begin well, we need to finish well. We need to go the distance, if you will, if you will. And Israel uh, simply didn't cut the muster on that. Israel had all these things going for them. I mean, God provided for their every need. Uh, we'll, we'll look today how God miraculously fed them and he furnished water for them. He kept their clothes from wearing out. He protected them. He led them. And best of all, as we looked at last Sunday morning, God gave them his divine presence with the, the cloud by day and, and the fire by night. And, and despite all these blessings, all these advantages, uh, the children of privilege failed spiritually, which tells me that it's possible to miss God. Now, we don't believe, I don't believe, and I can refute, I've taught on this before, but the, the once saved, always saved doctrine that has, I think, done more maybe harm than good in the church, uh, Calvinism to the nth degree. But basically, if Paul's saying it's possible to, to, to miss out spiritually, to fall away, then we got to be on guard that we don't fall away. That's what I'm trying to get at. And so Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthian church and us, not just for them, but as us as well, didn't fail God in the same way. And so he begins talking about, as we started last week, talking about the various privileges that Israel enjoyed, how they were under the cloud, simply meaning that God's cloud, his presence was there in the daytime, the cloud shielding them from the intense summer sun, if you will, or the desert sun can be very intense. I'm thankful that we're going to cool off this week, finally. Finally, you know, it's like, thank you, Lord. But, but then at night when it got cold, then there was a fire at night. And so really God's presence was there. It was, it was a daily reminder God's with us, how he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Even when they uh, crossed the, the Red Sea, the cloud went from in front of them to behind them to protect them from the army of Israel, also shedding light on Israel if they wanted to travel at night in darkness on the other side. Those that are in God walk in the light. So we talked about that. And then the miracle of, of through the sea. You know, the, the idea of baptism and, 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 and God's once again hand with all that. And then baptized into Moses, the third blessing we talked about. And that simply meant that they were under godly leadership. If you want to pull that slide up, Lauren, that'd be great. Now, we're going to pick up today looking at the fourth area of blessing that God uh, was, was uh, uh, blessing his people with, and that is food from heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 says, And all ate the same spiritual food. Remember, the Sinai wilderness provided at least four significant potential dangers for the Israelites, scarcity of food, lack of water, intense heat by day, and intense cold at night. Well, the third potential danger was scarcity of food. Now, a number of years ago, if you were here in the valley, it was back in 2014, there was uh, stories that made the news, made headlines, and it wasn't far from our house here in Mesa, that there were black bears coming down from Paysonary off the rim, coming down into the valley because of a drought year. It was very dry, and they were looking for food. I remember that. 
They were about a mile and a half, two miles from our house in Mesa. I remember the helicopter shots on the news about that as well. And basically, they were not that far from our home. This past summer in Forest Lakes, even in front of our cabin in Overgard, there have been bear sightings. If you could bring up that slide with the bear sightings. Coming. We need a new computer back there, don't we? It's not there? All right. All right. Anyway, there was uh, bear sightings, and where I sleep at night in our cabin, where the bear was at, it was about 20 feet away. And ever since that time, I've been a little skittish because also this past summer, if you recall, up in Prescott, there was a man who built a cabin in Prescott area, and he was out in his porch drinking coffee at 8 in the morning, and a black, about a 10-year-old male black bear came, mauled him, hauled him off like 75 yards. Uh, he heard, the, the neighbor heard him screaming. He came out with a gun, actually shot the bear, but that time, by that time, the bear had killed this guy. Well... I don't know about you, but I love sleeping with the windows open when it's nice out in the summer air, up, up north at least. And uh, it's like, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm not sure if I want to do that because there, there's bears around here, you know. And uh, bottom line is, after all these sightings and happenings of, of bears, this, even this summer, I've been more cautious than ever. Uh, Game and Fish tells us don't feed the bears because a fed bear is a dead bear. If you feed them, if you, if you allow that to happen, they're going to get into your, your garbage or whatever, and, and that's their food source, and they'll get used to that, and that's not a good thing. Well, just as bears need food to live, so do people, all right? And so God, in Israel's needs then, God met that need by providing manna that appeared every single day except on the Sabbath, and the people would gather this manna, and it would nourish them. Manna simply means, what is it? What is it? It's like, if I could, frosted, if there are kids in here, frosted cornflakes kind of thing. It's kind of like frosted flakes or whatever. Well, this was the spiritual food that Paul was referring to. The daily provision of manna was a visible lesson from God for his people. And really, what was God after? God wanted to teach the Israelites that they should completely rely on him and trust in him. And God's trying to teach that to us every day, too, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that was, in essence, the, the sense of spiritual maturity, that I trust God more than I trust people. I, I trust God to provide. And, and really, the more, the more we become uh, spiritual and mature in our, in our walk with God, the more we, re, we actually realize how much we need God. I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but friends, you, you need and I need to be totally dependent on God. Now, that's easier said than, than living it out. I know that too. Uh, Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I love this chapter as a whole, but verse 3, uh, he says, he hum God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to do what? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so God provided supernaturally food, manna for them, so they would simply learn from God and, and live for God's purposes and, and to learn that, hey, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. And so really the manna was a supernatural provision for God. Think about this. The Israelites didn't have to till the soil. They didn't have to plant the seed or wait until the harvest. 
Now, as you know, I love the garden, and the green tomatoes out there are the last of, it, of my garden for this year because a week and a half ago, we got a killing frost. Plants are dead. Everything's pulled out now. I dug up the carrots this past week. I was calling, talking to Mom. I said, you know, I'm not sure if I want to grow carrots because of all the work. You have to dig up the soil. you got to plant the seeds. you got to water it, which we didn't get much rain this year. And then in the fall, you dig up the harvest. You dig up the carrots. And I got all of those, and I got about a five-gallon pill of, of carrots that will last me then until uh, next early next summer. Uh, my last carrots I ate from last year was about June, and so I didn't buy a lot of carrots this year, but, but it's like for a dollar a package, for a pound package on sale, that's pretty tempting, you know, versus the, the, the work involved. Well, the manna, all they had to do is be obedient and do it God's way, and they were to go out each morning except on the Sabbath and gather it from the ground. It was always there, rain or shine. I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, that's kind of like for me this past August going to Alaska, and there were blueberries everywhere. All you had to do is gather it. I mean, you could get buckets full just by going out there. With a manna, you could gather, you know, what you needed for that day. And so God was simply demonstrating to his people his faithfulness and his ability to provide for them. He showed himself worthy of the Israelites' complete trust. Now, the daily provision of the manna revealed God's concern for his people. And guess what? Just as God has concern and had concern for the Israelites then, he has concern for them now. It's like, God, show yourself strong right now. Show yourself strong. May, 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 may the nation of Israel, may, may the people of Israel, may the Jewish people see your hand at work. And, and Jesus, may they know you as the true Messiah, you know. And that's been my, been my prayer. But, but God not only cares, church, about our spiritual needs, God also cares about your physical needs. Amen. Amen. And so and Paul wrote to the Philippians, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, that's always been the experience, really, of God's people. When we trust him, he provides for our every need. Now, Peter encouraged his readers of his first letter to trust God. He says this in 1 Peter 1, uh, 5, 5 uh, 6 and 7. Peter says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then verse 7, one of my favorites says, cast all your anxiety, all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. I love that. I like the fact that we can say, God, here it is. You know, I cast this upon you. And, and then when you cast it upon him, don't pick it back up, amen? But God cares for us. And so how many know that, that we don't always learn the lessons God tries to teach us the first time around? No, it's true for my life, and I'm, I'm assuming it's true for yours as well. See, it took a while for the Israelites to learn the lesson of trust. God gave, even with the manna, very clear and precise instructions. The people were to gather each day only what they needed for that day. On the morning before the Sabbath, they were to gather enough for two days so that they could rest on the Sabbath. My mom's here today, and I remember Grandma Oldenkamp, her mom, used to prepare uh, the Sunday meal on Saturday so she wouldn't have to work on Sunday, you know, and getting everything done, bring, you know, being brought up with that mindset. But, well, the morning before the Sabbath, they were to do all the work in that day, enough for two days. Now, some of the people 
didn't listen. They tried to hoard manna by gathering more than they needed for the day. Now, if I was living back then, I'd probably be in that group because I like to stockpile things. When, when, when groceries go on sale, well, used to go on sale. <laughs> when groceries go on sale, you buy quantity and you buy enough, you know, so, so uh, when, when the pandemic strikes, you have enough toilet paper type of thing, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm just saying they tried to hoard manna by gathering more than what they needed for a day. They quickly discovered that any extra manna then they gathered spoiled overnight, breeding worms, maggots, if you will, and developing a bad smell. Well, the assault in their nostrils told them and helped nail home the understanding that they should do things God's way and not their way. All right, when your food starts to rot and spoil, whatever. Now, back then, they were simply learning, give us this day our daily bread. Now, my prayer probably be, give me this week or give me this month or give me this year, my daily year, you know, whatever, or my yearly year or whatever. But uh, others who gathered only one day's worth on Friday morning went out to gather on Saturday morning, the Sabbath, and there was no manna. And all of a sudden, their hunger pain said, you know, we should listen to God. We should do things God's way because where God guides, God provides. Where God leads, God feeds. Now, these words are more than just slogans. Trust is really at the very center of everything we do when it comes to our relationship with God. That's also really the very lesson that God wanted the Israelites to learn. He wanted them to trust that he would fulfill what he promised he would do. Friends, God will do what he promised he will do. Even though it might not seem like it right now, even though, even though things might seem upside down and spinning out of control right now, as I pray, God is still on his throne. All right? And, and God wanted them to believe that, that, you know something, what he said he will do. God's word is reliable. And he wanted them to learn how to walk and stay in the center of his will. Now, eventually, uh, most of the Israelites learned the lesson, at least, part, or at least partly, and they discovered, you know, it's easier and better to stay near the cloud and the fire and to keep close to the center of God's will because God's going to take care of us. Well, God had a way of leading his people to stay inside his will because the manna fell only in and around the camp. Those who wanted the manna had to stay within the camp, if you will. They had, to, they had to remain within the company of the congregation. Anyone who chanced to venture out on their own found themselves outside of God's divine protection without manna and a, and a stomach that was saying, you know, I think it's supper time and I missed it here. You know, I don't want to do that again. Now, the Israelites were children of privilege because they were recipients of the great and abundant provision of God. God provided them spiritual food. And that was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. And the good news is God has not changed. And just as he provided for his people in the wilderness, so he will provide for all who are in need, who simply learn to trust him and the hard part to do things his way, not our way. And so number, number four, food from heaven. And so under the cloud through the sea, baptized into Moses, food, food from heaven. The fifth blessing is this. The fifth privilege is this. And I'm going to spend a little more, more time on this one. Water from the rock. Water from the rock. The final privilege in Paul's list 
that the Israelites enjoyed is 1 Corinthians 10.4. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. Now, this incident that we read about refers to the Israelites camping at Rephidim and complained because Moses uh, did not provide uh, water for them and they were grumbling and complaining. Well, at God's direction, Moses took his staff and struck the rock and, and then the rock poured forth the water for the people, all the people, a couple million people, as well as the livestock. Well, Moses named the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Because it was there that the Israelites tested the Lord and quarreled against Moses. Exodus chapter 17, 1 through 7, referring to this, this story, is, it says this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Exodus 17, 1. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? There was Moses, this is your fault. All right. And then Moses cried out to God, to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Strike the rock and water will come out. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, what happened there, it was spiritual drink because God provided for them supernaturally just as God provided the food for them. Now, let me do some cross-reference reading for you in uh, looking at this incident. Psalm 105, verse 41 says, He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out, and they ran in the, place, in the dry places like a river. Water ran in the dry places like a river. Remember, they're in a desert. They're in a desert. They're in a very arid, dry, dry land. And God did this. But I want you to see the words, like a river. We sang about the river of God this morning. And in in two songs, we talked about the river. Uh, Psalm 78, 15 and 16. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers and caused waters to run down like rivers. Again, referring to the water from the rock. Psalm chapter 114, verse 8 says of God, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint, the flint into a fountain of water. 
Well, flint is one of the hardest of stones. Remember the old flintlock muskets? They used a hard piece of flint to make a spark that would then ignite the gunpowder, shooting then that, that, uh, that uh, what was it called? Ball, the, the steel ball, the, the steely ball, and through the gun and uh, the flint. Although flint is a very, very hard stone, God broke it open in the wilderness and brought forth a river to refresh his people. Clearly, Paul attached much more than a simple meaning to Israel's experience at Rephidim. For him, this event that I've been reading about in the Bible contained a great spiritual significance. See, Paul knew that the water had a divine source and a greater purpose than simply to quench physical thirst. The Israelites drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and, the, and Paul writes, and that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. Ezekiel 47, 9 states, so everything will live, everything will live where the river goes. Thank God for his river. Thank God for his refreshing presence. Thank God that, that God is pouring out his spirit. Thank God for the, the pockets of revival here and there that I've read about and reading about. And, and I say, God, may, may the river's waters increase. May there be a bigger deluge of water from the throne of God to the people of, of this world that can experience that wonderful refreshing from God. May multitudes begin to experience firsthand the refreshing that God God and God alone can provide. The Bible says that, that it's through, repent, through repentance that refreshing comes. And so God's moving by His Spirit, and I rejoice with all those who have found refreshing at the river. But let's not make the mistake of, seeing, of saying that the river is the finish line of the race. The river is not the final goal. Rather, it is a God-given spiritual boost on the journey that God set out for us. In other words, we are meant to cross over to the other side and not just get stuck in the river. Now, we all know that water is a key to life. Water is absolutely essential to physical life. No creature on earth, including man, can survive without water. All right? Mm. So refreshing. You see, throughout human history, the need for water greatly influenced the development of culture and the growth of civilization. For example, the digging of a well determined where a new village would spring up. I'm, I'm thankful today that a lot of our missionaries are, are, are providing wells for villages. And I read about this from our missionaries in Africa, whatever, and raising funds to dig wells. And that, that is a great privilege and a benefit for, for, that, for that village. Well, a confluence of rivers became the cradle of a great city or even a mighty empire. Seaside towns developed a maritime industry because of of the emphasis on water. You see, because of its inseparable link to physical life, it is not surprising then that water is used throughout Scripture as a powerful metaphor for spiritual life. 
made from the four rivers of Eden in Genesis 2 through Ezekiel 47 with its river flowing from the house of God all the way to Revelation chapter 22 and the river of life issuing from the Lamb, the throne of God into the Lamb. You see, water simply symbolizes the pouring forth of the life-giving Spirit of God upon the earth. But the Bible also clearly illumines man's tendency to concentrate on the natural water that refreshes the body while ignoring the spiritual water that gives life to the soul. You'll recall uh, Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman that he dealt with this very issue. After asking her to give him a drink and listening to her surprise question as to why a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for water, Jesus said to her, John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Now, the woman did not understand, though, and asked Jesus what he would use to draw this water. Well, she was still in the natural mindset, still thinking about natural water that would quench her thirst for a day, and yet Jesus wanted to give her water that would satisfy her spirit for an eternity. And Jesus answered in John chapter 4, 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks this water, speaking of natural water, will be thirsty again. But, verse 14, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Thank God for that. Now, on another occasion, sometime later, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day of the week-long festival, after the priests had carried the ritual libation of water from the Pool of Siloam to the temple, Jesus stood up and, and declared in a loud voice, almost yelling, He says, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he said this in verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Some translations say rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. John says in the next verse that by this, verse 39, Jesus meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, going back to Israel, the the river from the rock, if you will, represented the very power and the very purpose of God. And the very power and purpose of God was being brought to bear in the lives of the people that God had chosen to be a light to the nations. And so as the Israelites drank from the river at Rephidim, trusting themselves to God's will and God's care, the spiritual river, which was Christ, the anointed one, then renewed them, refreshed them, and nourished their spirits. You see, Israel was learning to rely on God for their spiritual needs as well as their physical needs. They were learning to be the spiritual children of God. So we can see from this passage 
that the Israelites were truly children of privilege, blessed of God, under the cloud, through the sea, baptized into Moses, food from heaven, manna every day, water from the rock, and not just a little, enough water to quench the thirst of two plus million people and the livestock. The Israelites had everything going for them. And yet Paul writes, verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in and over the desert. See, they loved the privileges, they loved the blessings, they loved the provision of God, but they were not interested, hear me church, they were not interested in the responsibility that went with the blessing. Now I want you to get that. That being said, I wonder today how different are we today than, than they were? Or are we pretty much the same, you know? Because the church at large today, man, we love the blessing of God. And God blesses his people, don't get me wrong. We love the outpouring of God's spirit. And just worshiping in his presence, like worship this morning, just in his presence. It's wonderful. We enjoy the privileges. And we say we want revival. And we say, God, pour out your spirit in this world today. But do we really realize what God wants from us? Do we really realize what God's after in us? Do we realize the responsibility that goes with the blessing, that goes with the privileges? I read a couple of days ago from Dr. Michael Brown, and I thought this was spot on. If you're not willing to be taken out of your comfort zone, don't even bother praying for revival. Let me say it again. That's 100% right on. If you're not willing to be taken out of your comfort zone, don't even bother praying for revival. See, it seems today to me that, that we want the release of the Holy Spirit, but the church at large, and I'm just picking on the Western church, us, we don't want to know the restraint of the Holy Spirit. We want the release, we want the outpouring, we want the blessing. But there's more to it than just that. See, the Israelites, as I said, had everything going for them. They were protected, they were fed, they were clothed. I mean, no one could have been better equipped for running a spiritual race than the young nation of Israel was. They got off to a great start, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yet despite their overwhelming advantages, most still fell short of the goal. And Paul says, be on guard, church. Be on guard, church. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, how could such a promising start end in such disappointment? How did such a people of privilege lose it all? I mean, why did such a well-equipped group of runners fail to finish the race? Well, Paul lists some of the reasons. We'll get into this in a few weeks after our, our uh, um, Veterans Observance Sunday, November 5, coming up in two weeks. We'll look at this starting on the 12th. See, Paul lists some reasons in 1 Corinthians 10 idolatry, immorality, 
testing God, grumbling against God. Verse 6, he warns that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And since Israel's example, uh, experience is an example for us, it says it's written for our instruction. Now, what does that mean for us? I mean, too often we tend to read God's word and we see it from, his, from a historic uh, viewpoint as, a, as almost as a historic book that has little practical or relevant application to our own lives. And friends, we have to read God's word and say, God, what, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do in light of what your word says? Because the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God carries with it a prophetic application for every generation. And so God's word, even though it speaks of Israel, it's speaking to us today. God's word is speaking to his church today, saying, church, be on guard. Church, take heed, lest you think you stand in case you're going to fall. I mean, church, learn from the example of Israel. Don't repeat what Israel did. And so we look at ourselves once again, and we know that God has blessed us. We know the spiritual blessings that are ours. As I said, God is a blessing God. And many of us, many of us have experienced the river, the, the life of God. We're flowing in the blessing of God and the refreshing part on, on what God's doing in his church. And that's all wonderful. That's all good. But, but, but if, if that's all that remains for us, just blessing and refreshing, if we never, in other words, if we never move beyond privilege to the purpose that God has for the privilege, then we are in the same danger, if you will, that both Israel and the Corinthian church were in. I'm simply saying, church, privilege is not everything. There's more, there is more that God has for us than just the refreshing or the blessing. Now, there's more to being a Christian, let me say it this way, there's more to being a Christian than just saying a prayer and walking down an aisle of a church. Being a follower of Christ will affect every area of your life. It'll affect every part of you, all right? And so privilege, I'm simply saying, only goes so far. Israel's experience has several lessons for us. Number one is this. Privilege does not guarantee us immunity from trials and problems. As wonderful as privileges and blessings of God are, they do not guarantee us immunity from trials and problems. Just because the Israelites drank from the river, they enjoyed God's daily provision of manna, were under the cloud and pillar of fire, had godly leadership, left Egypt, all of that did not mean that they didn't have challenges, problems, trials, or temptations to face because there were many. The people, however, proved unwilling to follow God through the challenges into the fullness of his purpose for them. Now, once again, Israel loved the blessings, they loved the privileges, but they were not interested in the responsibility that went with them, number one. Number two, privilege is not the same as character. Privilege is not the same as character. God's benefits reveal his nature toward us, but they don't say anything of our relationship toward him necessarily. Now, the privilege that God gives us portrays the blessing and the, and the goodness of God. But when God blesses us, it really reveals nothing about who we are inside. I'm just simply saying privilege is a gift. Character is grown. Privilege is a gift. 
The graciousness of God, God gives, but character is grown. Years ago, I read a story of a man in Seattle, and this man was miraculously healed of a severe back problem that had all but crippled him. God healed him. A few weeks after his healing, the story went, he confessed to an incestuous relationship that he had with his high school-aged daughter dating back to her very young childhood. And I thought of, of all the people I knew who needed healing and who were walking closer to God and, and in my mind, more deserving than that man was, and yet God healed him because privilege is a gift and it says nothing about character. Number two. Number three, privilege does not free us from personal responsibility. I fear that many today like to chase down experiences from one meeting to another rather than ask, God, what is this all about? God, why are you touching me? God, why this fresh anointing? Why this fresh outpouring? God, what am I supposed to do? And we run the risk of living for the blessing and failing to get involved in the greater and deeper purpose of God behind it. Church, the Bible still says, these signs shall follow them that believe. In other words, signs should follow us and not us follow and chase after the signs. In his book, The God Chasers, Tommy Tenney writes, and I quote, one of our problems is that whenever we have good services, or feel like revival has come, we, we tend to camp out at that spot and pull aside from our, spirit, from our pursuit of God so we can dance around the burning bushes. And he says this, we get so caught up in what happened at the bush that we never go back to Egypt and set people free. In other words, we are too easily satisfied with things that are not quite as they should be. And God's saying, church, I want you to be on guard and I want you to press in and I want to bless you, but realize the blessing is not just for you. I bless you so you can be a blessing to others. The purpose of God. We talked about that last three or four weeks. Now I'm pressing this point because the church is in grave danger of once again stopping at the burning bush. Man, we enjoy his blessings, we enjoy his privileges, uh, his grace, his presence is wonderful, his, his provision is there, his protection, it's all great, but, but is God pleased with us? Are we living for his pleasure? Are we fulfilling his purpose for our lives? Because honestly, God's purpose for you and me is the same as God's purpose as it was in Israel's day for Israel. As I briefly mentioned last Sunday, God wanted Israel to be a spiritual light that would bring the whole world to him. In other words, a light for, for him, for the nations surrounding them. They enjoyed the benefits, they enjoyed the blessings as the privileged people of God, but as we noted, they failed to move beyond their privilege to fulfill God's purpose. And Paul, by divine inspiration, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying to us today, we must be on guard against the same thing happening to the church in our day. These things were written down for your examples. Church, 
listen. Church, not, not just to heed, but to, not just to hear, hear the warning, but to heed the warning. In other words, let's not get just caught up and, and be all about the privileges. Let's be about the purposes of God. The privileges are great, but we need to move beyond basking in God's blessing to pursuing God's purpose. Even when I preached on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, remember the water from the rock, and that rock was Christ, and the outpouring of God's Spirit. Even when I preached on the baptism, it's not so we can speak in tongues. It's not so we can get those little doodads on our arms, back of our neck, or whatever. The Holy Ghost has been poured out upon the people of God for a purpose so we can be his witnesses, so we can represent his kingdom, so we can see lives being changed and, 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 and souls being delivered from sin by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about the purpose of God. It's not about, well, I speak in tongues. So, you know, um, we need to move beyond that. So the privileges are great, but let's move beyond to God's purposes. In J. Sidlow Baxter's devotional, Awake My Heart, he remarks, and I quote, it's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life. That is because there are those who believe Christ for salvation of the soul from damnation in eternity, yet never hand over their life to him, thus failing to render spirit-filled service here and receive reward afterwards. Now, as you're going through 1 Corinthians 10, realize all Israel, the word all is used constantly. All Israel shared in the blessings and the privileges of God. The word all is repeated over and over again. All left Egypt, a type of the world, and began the journey to the promised land, a type of heaven. All began to walk through the wilderness of the world and with, uh, with those who truly believed and trusted God. But as became evident, all who started out on their race were not genuine. They did not truly believe or trust. They felt safe and secure because after all, they were journeying that, that journey with those who were traveling to the promised land. But they were still in the wilderness, not in the promised land. All, all the people started out in that race. And the wilderness included all kinds of dangers that, that had to be confronted, that had to be conquered, or else they would be destroyed by the wilderness. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute, Here, here's all of the privileges for Israel. I mean, God had provided Israel with a cloud of his presence by day, uh, a fire by night. It, it kept them cool in the day, heat at night, passed through the Red Sea. That miracle alone was incredible. Uh, Israel was baptized with incredible leadership into Moses and his leadership. They partook of the food of God's provision, manna, you know, what is it, from heaven. Uh, Israel had the presence of Christ, water from the rock, rivers flowing. I mean, it was wonderful. However, what happened to most of Israel is tragic. Now keep this in mind. I alluded to it last week. There are over 600,000 men alone who broke away from the enslavements of Egypt and began the journey to the promised land. Over 600,000 men alone. That means including the women and children, there were estimates between 2 and 3 million or more who stepped out to follow God to the promised land. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 1. But I think the critical questions are these. How many remained faithful to God through the wilderness journey? Of that number, how many actually turned away from the fleshly desires aroused by the delicious foods, drinks, and bodily stimulations of Egypt and of the world? 
how many actually disciplined their bodies, subjected their desires, and kept their eyes and hearts on the promised land, on the goal. How many were faithful and steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord until they reached the promised land? Remember, over two million began the journey. How many entered the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. Two. Joshua and Caleb alone remained faithful to God. Only two did not sin and displease God. Everyone else, over two to three million, perished in the wilderness. You have deceived yourself, sir or ma'am, if you think you can continue in your sin and still make heaven. See, they were overthrown, that is, in the language there, scattered, scattered as corpses all over the wilderness. Why? Because the Bible says they didn't please God. Which simply means they lived for their own pleasure. They lived for themselves. Now when it comes down to it, and everything that happened to them, and their bodies scattered in the wilderness, it pretty much comes down to lacking the fruit of the Holy Spirit called self-control. I closed last Sunday by sharing with you how God has given us what it takes to walk in victory, even down the very warnings that we, that we must hear. But it's not enough just to hear the warnings. We must heed the warnings. Leonard Sweat in his, or Sweet, in his book, Aqua Church, writes, Our pews are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't want to move. In other words, our pews are occupied by people who want to be moved emotionally but don't want to move obediently. His quote reminds me of the lyrics of a song I heard a number of years ago. The song is called The Wanderer, sung by U2 and Johnny Cash. Quite a a combination. The Wanderer. check Check it out on YouTube. And one of the phrases in that song says, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. God, we want your kingdom. We want revival. We want to see you move. We want to see you make a difference in in our nation throughout this world. God, we want to see you move powerfully. But we don't want you. They say they want the kingdom, but don't want God in it. You see, worshiping God and pursuing God and living for God is simply about extravagant love and extreme obedience. That's worship. It's living for God's pleasure, not living for our pleasure. And my closing questions to us today are these. See, God is preparing his bride. I believe with all my heart, the coming of Jesus is very, very, very soon. Very soon. God's preparing his bride. Will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of it? Are you living your life for yourself? Or are you living your life for his pleasure? If you want to make the promised land, heaven, 
my challenge, my exhortation, a little stronger word, to each of us today is live for his pleasure, not for your own. Live for his pleasure, not for your own. And so ask yourself this morning, what is Holy Spirit speaking to me about? In light of this message, what is Holy Spirit speaking to me about? Right where you're sitting, right where you're at, where you close your eyes and say, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me about today? Holy Spirit, show me. Am I living for myself? Am I living for my pleasure? Or am I living for your pleasure? Ask God by his spirit to show you where you're at. See, the altar call is pretty simple. If you're living for yourself, for your pleasure, man, today, I, with all my might, I would say, please, 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 repent of that and do things God's way. Learn to trust God. Thanking him for all the blessings, yeah. But realize the blessings are just to help you in the journey. The blessings are there. The privileges are there. But don't get wrapped up in that when you know there's purpose beyond the privilege. There's purpose beyond the outpouring, beyond his presence. And ask God to help you to see that today. To be part of his bride. Saying, Lord, today, I surrender every part of my life to you. If there's things you've been holding on to, areas in your life that you know about, that God knows about, that aren't pleasing to him, you need to repent of those things and say, God, work in my life today. Prepare me as the bride of Christ, knowing that that trumpet's going to sound soon, and I want to be ready. While heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed, if God's been speaking to you about things in your life that are not pleasing to him, right where you're at, I would, I would admonish you to say, God, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me of doing things my way. God, forgive me for basking, if you will, in the privileges and the, in the blessings, but not fulfilling your purposes. God, raise up a generation. Raise up a generation. As it was said of David, he served the purposes of God in his generation. God, may that be said of my life and, and those that, that are under my spiritual care. This in this church, Father. That we, would, that we would fulfill your purposes as we journey in this race to win and to end well. Help us to be more like Joshua and Caleb that would move into the promised land so our bodies, so to speak, wouldn't be scattered in this desert. Let us live for your pleasure, your honor, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I close today, and there is a prayer meeting tonight at 6 o'clock, and you're all invited to the prayer meeting. But I close today by opening up the altars. And if you would like to come and spend a few minutes before God, and just kind of heeding, not just hearing, but heeding what God's been speaking to this body today. Because, friends, I, I, every time I preach... For me, these are not just idle words, they are your life. 
It's the word of God, and God's word will not return to him void. And I believe God has a prophetic word for all of us today. If God's been speaking to you about getting some things settled with him, uh, maybe changing some things that, that aren't pleasing to him, I want to ask you from where you're sitting just to get out and come down to the altar. The altars will be open, Pastor Jimmy, playing here. But let's just seek the Lord in that and, and believe God to apply his word to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Other than that, uh, God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Church is dismissed. Uh, the altars will be open. And once again, tonight, 6 p.m., there will be an hour of prayer. And I invite you for that hour of prayer this evening. But God bless you all. And uh, have a great week in the Lord. Wednesday evening services, adult Bible study in here. 6 p.m., there's youth group, kids, kids clubs, and nursery. But have a, have a blessed week in the Lord. Amen. God bless you.